Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Radical Candor Podcast. I'm Kim Scott, author of Radical Candor and co-founder of Radical Candor, the company. And I'm Jason Rosoff, CEO and co-founder of Radical Candor. And I'm Amy Sandler, Chief Marketing Officer of Radical Candor, a candor coach, and I'll be your host for the podcast, Radical Candor, How to Kick Ass at Work Without Losing Your Humanity. That's a lot of radical candor. That is a lot of rad. I feel like, do I need less radical candor? No, never. Okay, never. You can never have too much radical candor. In fact, we got some really helpful feedback from one of our listeners who also happens to be my sister. Hi, Susan. That there's some folks joining us in season two who might not know what exactly radical candor is. So first, letting you all know, we've put an explainer of radical candor in the show notes of each episode, and we will do that going forward. And we thought it would be a good idea to spend a little bit of time talking about what radical candor is and what makes it so darn radical. Kim? Sure. So radical candor at one level is a very simple idea. It's caring personally and challenging directly at the same time. It's love and truth at the same time. You don't have to choose. You can do both. So what maybe a good way to explain what it is is also to explain what it isn't. So sometimes we challenge directly and we forget to show that we care personally. And that is obnoxious aggression, which is not radical candor. And very often when we realize we've acted that way, when we realize we've been a jerk, rather than moving the right way on the care personally dimension of radical candor, we go the wrong way on challenge directly. And we wind up in the worst place of all, manipulative insincerity. And this is where passive aggressive behavior, political behavior, toxic workplace backstabbing behavior happens. And it's fun to tell stories about obnoxious aggression and manipulative insincerity. Most TV shows are about those behaviors in the office and everywhere else in life. But the fact of the matter is the vast majority of us make the vast majority of our mistakes when we do remember to show that we care personally, because most people are pretty nice people. But we're so concerned about not hurting someone's feelings that we don't tell them something they're better off knowing. And that mistake is what I call ruinous empathy. So radical candor is basically when you're able to care personally and challenge directly at the same time. Make sense? It does make sense. And I think one of the things we've learned is that people love the framework because it's it's actually pretty easy to understand care and challenge. You know, how hard could that be? But, you know, how hard could that be? So, <laughs> But it gets so, misinterpreted <laughs> a lot. You know, it Jason, gets misinterpreted. Yeah, Jason, what are some of the ways that we have seen that radical candor has been misunderstood? So I I think the first is what Kim already alluded to, right? Which is this um, mistaking obnoxious aggression for radical candor. And just because feedback is useful does not mean it's delivered in a radically candid way, right? The the idea of challenging directly without demonstrating care personally, I think a lot of us, uh, when we think about our feedback experiences, some of the first that come to mind are actually obnoxious aggression. And Again, not because the feedback we received wasn't useful, but because we remember how badly it made us feel to receive it. Um, So instead of feeling like uh, a a loving, supportive conversation, it feels like sort of being hit over the head with a frying pan, which it alerts you to the pain that the frying pan can cause, makes you aware of that behavior, but at the same time, 
I, I think it, it can really uh, it can undermine confidence and it can make us less likely to seek that type of input in the future. And so we just need to be really conscious of that. Um, there are all other radical things in the world. Radical is used as a moniker to describe other sort of theories uh, about uh, behavior. And I think uh, one really important thing for listeners to understand is that we chose the word radical for the uh, because it also happens to mean rare. Uh, in this world, radical often is associated with extreme behavior. Uh, but that's that's not the kind of radical that we're talking about. We're talking about unusual, unique, or rare, um, which is it is rare to receive these sort of the care, the love, and the truth at, at at the same time. I think also the thing about radical is that it means fundamental, and love and truth are very fundamental human values that cross all cultures. And that I, I know almost, in fact, I know no one. I'm going to go out on a limb and say I know no one who thinks that. Kim on a limb alert, Kim on a limb alert. Maybe we can start putting some some music every time Kim goes on a limb. I know of some people who don't seem to care about love and truth, but I don't actually know a real human being who doesn't care about love and truth. Yeah, yeah. And and I think when we we were working with you on the second edition, it it became really important to us to try to... uh, sort of head off at the past, this, this misunderstanding. And you put a lot of work into the forward of, of the second edition, helping people understand that actually when we were original, when you were originally writing the book and, and as we've been working with organizations, this concept of uh, compassionate candor as a synonym for radical candor, not necessarily a replacement, but as a synonym for radical candor is, is actually really helpful for a lot of people. And Amy has given me a lot of good thoughts about the word compassion. Oh, tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) You sent me some really good stuff to read about the difference between compassion and empathy. Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting because empathy is really kind of a, a precursor to compassion. Obviously, ruinous empathy is when we're caring so much we're not taking action. But compassion, there's really a sense of action in the word. So it's the caring with, it's the feeling with, and yet not being so overwhelmed that we don't actually take a step in service of that other of that other person. And so interestingly, even from a neuroscience perspective, uh, they looked at uh, Matthew Ricard, who I believe was dubbed the happiest man alive. He had been a a monk uh, as well as a, you know, I think a PhD, I'll have to look it up in biology. Um, And when they looked at his brain and they showed him really horrifying images of, of children suffering. It was, it was too much. He actually shut down, but, but when he was able to do something in service for these people, um, which is compassion, that's when you can actually, um, not only be sort of use the empathy, but use it in service. And so, so compassionate candor, I think is a really great framing. And, you know, one of the things we found was that people could just say the phrase, and I'm using the air quotes, in the spirit of radical candor, and then feel like that gave them like a get out of jail free card, and they could just say whatever they whatever yeah. they wanted. Yeah, no, that's so true. One of the most painful moments after the book was published, I was working with this company to roll out the ideas uh, and the practices of radical candor, and someone walked into a meeting and said, in the spirit of radical candor, and then proceeded to act like a garden variety jerk. And I'm like, that's not the spirit of radical candor. That's the spirit of obnoxious aggression. So it's been really important uh, to help people understand that if they see that happening in their organization, 
they should they, they can use the term compassionate candor instead of radical candor because radical sometimes has it, it falls trippingly off the tongue. It's fun to say radical candor, but but sometimes it leaves people with the wrong impression. And I think what's really interesting, and we had this conversation, Kim, is that do you feel like a book titled Compassionate Candor in 2017 would have been as successful as a book titled Radical Candor? No, absolutely not, especially not one written by a woman. So I I actually was very uh, aware of the bias against kind of soft, soft, quote unquote, air quotes again, leadership skills. Uh, it's, it's actually really hard to be radically candid, really hard in, in that it's difficult. And it's a hard skill also in that it results in better achievement. It, re- it results in hitting your goals. And so it is a hard skill in both senses of, of the word. Well, I think that we will continue to unpack this idea of compassionate candor and why is Um, something that's actually so challenging to practice sometimes perceived as something soft or weak when in fact it's, it's such a strength. So I suspect that will be, that will be a theme. I I do want to dig into, um, you know, where we are in this moment, we're, we're really still navigating through COVID-19 and some folks are starting to get back into the workplace. Some have been there the whole time. Many of us still, still remote. And I would say one of the biggest questions that we have received is how do we balance the care and the challenge during a crisis? And how, in fact, do you even challenge during a crisis? So Jason, I'm going to start first with you. Like, how do you think about challenging during a time of crisis? I I think I'll, I feel like I'm going to be quoting Kim here because one thing that I've learned over time is that when things are going well, it is important uh, to question, you know, what you're doing and how you're doing it. Um, but when things are not going well, it's even more important to find ways to, to, to question, to push back against what is happening. I think in times of crisis, it's very tempting to say, because we're so sort of steeped in stress you know, we should, we should ignore small problems or we should ignore things that we think, uh, you know, they might, we're not sure if they're getting in the way, uh, of our success. And what, what I found is that during this crisis for, for me, I have had such a negative reaction to, to people downplaying things, um, that it's, it's maybe certain that, being able to challenge one another, being able to speak truth to one another uh, is even more important in these moments. And, and that's because uh, I, I'm, a, I'm an adult and I, I want to make my own decisions. Like we often see people in good times back away from challenge because they want to protect the other person's feelings. I think in the moment of crisis, it feels overwhelmingly important to protect one another's feelings, but that prevents us from being fully functioning, fully engaged adults. We don't have the information. We can't make good decisions based on it. And so we've had, I think we've had as a team internally, a couple of really great conversations where we looked really sort of directly in the face of all the things that we're finding challenging in this moment. And I know we'll come back to that uh, later in this conversation, but, but those have felt as cathartic to me, like those like direct conversations about the facts of what's going on and and our perspectives on those things have felt as cathartic to me as the things we've done to make each other feel 
you know, uh, like to take care of each other emotionally. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I thought a great, a great moment on our team was when you got on a call with everybody and you laid out exactly where our finances were and how much run, runway we had. And I thought that was so important because, of course, everybody's worried about when are we going to run out of money and uh, and letting people know that was actually very reassuring. In fact, the situation was a lot better than I thought it was. Uh, so, I mean, it, you know, scary still, but but very often when we don't have the facts, we tend to imagine the very, very worst. And when we do have the facts, uh, we can begin to figure out how we're going to deal with them. And so I thought that was an important leadership moment for uh, for you. So thank you for doing that for us. Yeah, yeah thank you, I, Jason. And, you know, I want to actually dig into that a little bit further, which is when you do have the facts, we can make decisions. What about when we don't? You know, so much of, I think, the challenge right now is uncertainty and is navigating through a sense of um, we don't really know the best path to take or what is going to look like in three months or six months. So how do we... Um, how do we navigate challenge in uncertainty? Yeah, really uh, important. And, you know, of course, a really important, really important answer to that is I don't know. And sort of <laughs> learn, <laughs> learning how to say I don't know and I don't when the fact is I don't know, I think is one of the most important assets that uh, that we have. But also learning how to sort of talk very explicitly about what we do know about what we don't know. So for example, uh, shortly after this started, one of the things that I did know was that I had, my kids were home from school. We actually pulled them home from school before they started schooling from home. So we decided that we were going to get very ambitious and teach them a lot of stuff, including diagramming sentences. And this whole situation added, you know, three or four hours of work to every day, which I didn't have. Uh, and so I was stressed out about it. Uh, and perhaps the stress rolled onto the team uh, a little bit because because it's it's hard to know how to deal with a sudden infusion of four new hours of work every day. And, uh, and, and Jason gave me some feedback about how I was dealing with it. That was incredibly helpful. So Jason, uh, you can describe the situation from your perspective. And I think this is a kind of a, a thing that a lot of teams out there are probably experiencing. By the way, I love, I love how Kim says Jason can over. describe it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I interrupted and then him. Interrupted he, him he took a before he could even get started. <laughs> but I do want to say something very important <laughs> before I let him talk, which is that we're all experiencing this, where some people on the team are dealing with the fact that they used to have a lot of solitude and now they have children and spouses at home 24-7, and other people used to have a lot of engagement, and now they're home alone, and some people have extra work because they have kids, and other people don't. So we're all in different situations in this uh, new and unpredictable world we live in. So now I'll really let you talk. <laughs> yeah, I, I, my, my experience and my recollection of what happened was you, you, you had all this new, new work going on. We were busy launching the product that we, we just released, which is the, the feedback loop program. And, 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 and there was a lot, 
of questions that came up from that, right? Like we, 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 we literally launched on March 16th, which if you remember was three days after the entire country shut down, uh, for, for COVID-19. And there was just a lot of trying to figure out what we could do that would be helpful. Like how, how are we going to approach this moment? Uh, and Kim was busy also trying to homeschool her kids and write her next book. Um, so she, she had a, she had a lot going on. You had a lot going on. And, and my, and, and something that I've noticed as a, as a pattern is often when you have a lot going on and you want to be helpful, you will often start like pieces of work where you're like, introduce me to somebody else or like suggest some (laughs) big idea. Uh, and and it, it's with the best of intentions, right? You're really trying to help us do this, but you don't really have the time to fully engage. And and so when I approached you, I was trying to figure out a way to have this conversation with you because I recognized where it was coming from. And at the same time, it was sort of like, I, I described it to you as like casting a stone in a pond, right? Where, where you you felt like you were doing something small and and there were these ripple effects that, that would be had. And so a little bit of chaos was being created. Maybe a lot of chaos. <laughs> Maybe a lot of chaos is being created. And, and so, you know, when I approached you, my, my ask was like, hey, like, if you're going to, you know, make these suggestions, you know, either we need to find a way to do that so that it doesn't automatically create these ripples, or it needs to come from a place where you feel like where you can actually fully engage and be there with us as we try to figure out how to navigate the work. Because the in-between state is really hard. It's hard for me to manage and there's a lot going on in the team and I don't want to like create additional confusion, nor do I want to create an unnecessary burden on your time. So yeah, that, that was like the spirit with which I went into it. And I don't, it's been a while now, so I don't actually remember the conversation as clearly anymore. What was your experience? Yeah. So here's what I remember you said to me, which was, I feel like you come up with these bright ideas and we start to talk about it and then you have to run down the hill and diagram sentences, (laughs) which I think is, I don't think you just felt that way. I think that's what was actually happening. And, uh, and so I would create a lot of work and then run down the hill and diagram sentences with my, with my kids. So why you might ask, would I be running down the hill to diagram sentences? The reason is that I live in Los Altos Hills, which is very hilly and uh, and quite steep. And I work in this little glass box. I built this. I got three sliding glass doors from Home Depot and one big window. And Well, I didn't build it, but somebody helped me build a little shed, which is where I do all my work. And uh, And it's just up the hill from the house. So it's just far enough away that I get quiet, but not so far that my kids or my husband can't come get me if they need me. In fact, usually what they do when they need me is my, both my son and my daughter play the trumpet and they blow the trumpet and I come (laughs) running down the hill. (laughs) That is a little window into my life. (laughs) And it's, you know, it's not the first time I've, uh, I have um, gotten similar feedback shortly after my kids were born. Somebody on the team said said to me, just because I don't have children doesn't mean that I don't have a life. Like, stop dumping your work on me because you have to get home to your kids. And and I realized that was really, I mean, you said it much nicer. I would say the new situation where we're all at home, where my family and I are all at home together has has hurt my productivity to the tune of, I don't know, 30%. At the same time, it has given me a 60% parenting boost. 
And so one of the things that is that has been helpful for me is to be able to enjoy that 60% parenting boost and let go of the productivity loss. And the way you said it to me really helped me do that and kind of explore this new Pareto efficient frontier um, of, of integrating work and family. So, so I was very grateful to you. It helped me in the moment. And it also helped me uh, try to practice more proactive forbearance and stop throwing bright ideas at, at everybody else to, to go and implement while I ran down the hill to diagram sentences. Well, this is a note that we'll have to put the Pareto frontier and the proactive forbearance, the, uh, the PF club in the, in the show notes. Uh, I do, I want to call out, Kim, just how you felt cared for in that Jason really gave you permission to diagram sentences in this case, or really to, to, you know, spend the time with, with your kids. I do want to also dig in Jason on, on the emotion that you are feeling, because I think in these conversations, there is some pent up emotion and really trying to distinguish what's my emotion for myself that I can work with. How do I want to show up for Kim? So mindful, it was a few months ago, which at this point might feel like 20 years, but can you bring us back to that moment and just help us understand your own process before that conversation? Yes. So I I think what was going on in my head was, you know, my job ostensibly is to make sure that the, the, the company is making meaningful progress towards its very ambitious goals, which is like to like the podcast title says to help people kick ass at work without losing their humanity we're doing a lot of things in order to do that. And so I, I often feel like, uh, and I think this is true of most executive roles, or at least all the ones that I've been in that like a lot of the time that amounts to hurting cats, right. Where I'm just trying to like keep things basically in line. And at the same time, I'm trying to do that without silencing interesting, unique, or, or maybe sort of seemingly orthogonal thoughts. Because one thing that I've learned is that, it's often in those moments where we were saying something that feels entirely unrelated that we like come up with the best ideas of what we should be doing in the future. And so that's a very difficult balance to, to strike. And I think when you have, uh, even if it was somebody else, but especially because it was Kim, because she's Kim, I, I think like having someone sort of throw a stone in that pond and then disappear is really hard because it creates all these ripples, which, like cats might run in different directions and I'm trying to like pull, pull them back in and figure out what's going on. And now I have um, a visual of cats going through a pond of water. So that's, <laughs> yes, awesome. not happy I apologize them. for the, the compound metaphor there. Uh, <laughs> um, yes. Unhappy cats in a pond uh, <laughs> is what you wind up with. And, and so it's like, it's very frustrating because like my, I, I feel, I, I feel like a, a deep level of responsibility to help things keep going. And, and so having someone to undermine that, however, unintentionally, is really hard. And especially because, you know, you're Kim, like, I I think you're, and I've had the good fortune of working with the sort of very thoughtful, visible leaders in the past. It's invisible to you just how much impact like a small number of words might have on other people's perception of what it is that we're doing. So I, I was familiar with that feeling of frustration, but I really was, I was my, I was trying to come to Kim in the spirit of, uh, you know, we're, we're partners in this and we need to figure out a way to, to get, to like work through this together. Um, 
And when I said, you know, I really want you to be able to spend time, you know, with your kids and do the homeschooling thing, you know, that was really a product of, you know, Kim and I having other conversations where she was talking about how important it was. I mean, she said to the entire team, like how this was opening up new possibilities. And and, and so I was responding to, um, to, to that need. It, It wasn't like I intuited magically, like Kim had told us, this is very important to me and I want to be able to do this. Um, and so it was the combination of those two things that I brought in my head. The thing I was trying to leave behind, which I think is so uh, a very common experience for lots of people, is feeling like this was done on purpose, like that trying to let go of the, the belief and the associated judgment that Kim must know what she's doing. And as a result, like it, it's having this negative impact on me. And so that effort to sort of release myself uh, like give myself a break and say, you know, that's probably not what's going on here. You know, Kim really well. So like, let's let, let's let that go. And that was really helpful because it, it made it easier for me to stay focused on what I did want, which was for us to find effective ways, uh, to collaborate, even as things were changing so rapidly and so drastically. Well, I think it's such an important point that our minds were just these amazing story makers and we're connecting dots where they may or may not be. And so in our head, it might be, well, why is Kim throwing all these stones and then just going off to design sentences and she just wants to ruin my life and we paint a whole picture and then all of a sudden we realize, no, there's, there's Kim and I know Kim and I love Kim and let me, let me check in. So I think people can really relate to this idea of, of the need to really release judgment and the story we might be taking. But I, I do want to dig in a little bit more if this was a different setup, like many of the folks that are listening and your peer peer is having this frustration and, and you, you're not in the luxury of saying, okay, well, like I'm going to go work on my book and the, the company will sort of run itself. Like what then? Yeah, I think there's there's a couple of things that are coming up for me as we're talking. One is sort of this balance between understanding someone else's intentions and making them aware of what they're doing. And I think part of the magic of Jason's feedback to me is that he didn't he didn't say, you know, Kim, you're intending to take advantage of all of us and dump all your work on us. So there was no ascribing evil intentions to me. At the same time, he was sort of holding me accountable to be aware of what I was doing and to the rest of the team. And I think I think that is really an important an important part of feedback. The the other thing about this is figuring out like what you can and cannot do. And I think our culture so focuses on you can do it. Like, and the fact of the matter is we cannot do everything at the Mm -hmm. same time. (laughs) We can do the things that are the most important to us. I mean, the irony of this story is that when I ran down the hill to diagram the sentences, my son had written in his journal, mom, this is a pandemic. You need to relax. We do not want to diagram sentences. <laughs> uh, and so I had to let go of this notion. This was a big uh, uh, lesson in letting go of the of previous notions of productivity and sort of figuring out what we could do. And an important part of figuring out what we can do is figuring out what we cannot do. And I just, I think when you're working with peers or when you're working with other people or when you're home with your family, one of the, I want to encourage people to sort of embrace the productivity and I can't do it. Uh, one of the most powerful moments in my whole career came and in my life really came 
I was managing a team of uh, in 13 different countries. And I was 40 years old. I had just gotten married and I was trying to get pregnant. And I was trying to figure out how to balance the need to travel to 13 different countries, which I realize is irrelevant right now, but bear with me. The need to travel to 13 different countries and also the need to get pregnant quickly. And uh, and I, I was getting crazy ideas from people. Like one person suggested that I freeze dry my husband's sperm and FedEx it to China where I was going to go. Like really crazy ideas from people. It was stressing me out. And I went in to have a one-on-one with, with my boss, who was, who was Cheryl Sandberg. And I said, what, how do I do this? And she looked at me and she said, oh, that's easy. And I was like, do tell. And she said, you can't. And it was such a relief to hear, you can't do this. And she said, your focus right now needs to be on getting pregnant. You're 40 and you really want to become a mother. You do not have time. To, it was a radical candor moment. But it was so important and liberating to hear that I couldn't do all these things at the same time. And, and, and that can be really productive advice. Tim Cook at Apple often says, we at Apple are just as proud of the things we didn't do as the things we did do, because it was the things we didn't do that gave us the time and space to, to do the things we're most proud of. And so I think learning how to let go and decide what you're not going to do, it's always important, but it's more important now than ever when resources are limited, time is limited. And it doesn't mean that you won't do great work. I think one of the great fears of my career was that after I had children, I would be less, I would be less effective. And the fact of the matter is I've done the best work of my whole career after I had kids, when I had less time. And so you can still do great work. Uh, There's there's all these stories right now about, I think calculus was discovered in quarantine. Like you can do great work in a little bit of time if you decide what you're not going to do. So that's my advice with people right now is is be very clear about what you are and are not going to do and be clear with one another. I think that... Often what happens in, in these situations where there, maybe there's, you're not on the same team as your peer, or maybe you have different goals. Like one of the, the benefit that Kim and I had in that conversation is that we are aligned on what it is that we are trying to do. Uh, often when I hear people struggle to give peers this kind of direct uh, feedback, it is because they feel like actually they're not aligned, that that peer might have a different set of goals or maybe may motivated by different things uh, than they are. And, and I think in, in either case, you know, uh, I, I think it's important to recognize how many assumptions I, I just made in those couple of sentences, because I could have been wrong about what Kim had, like what was most important to, to Kim. Uh, I, I feel like based on our relationship, I, I was able to take some leaps, but those shortcuts, like one of the ways that I think about these conversations is I, I think you can expose what you what you think or what you believe the other person might be believing as a way to sort of encourage them to tell you differently, right? Like I, I think that from my perspective, this is what I see happening so that the other person actually has the opportunity to say, well, that's not a, that wasn't my intent. That, that is not my understanding of what's happening. Like we have, you have your facts wrong or that didn't even enter into my consideration because this is the thing that I was actually trying to do over here. This is like completely unrelated. Um, and so giving, 
when we give voice to our beliefs and the impact that we perceive, we actually create fertile ground on which to have a conversation with the other person about what they, what they think is happening. And I think too often when we go into conversations, whether they're with a peer or a boss or somebody who reports to us, we think we know what happened, number one, and we think we know what the best outcome is, number two. And both of those assumptions make cause us to make dangerous conversational maneuvers to try to get to the results that we perceive to be the best result for that conversation, which, which then sort of ruins the opportunity that you had to learn something fundamentally new about one another. And that similar to the sort of like, you can't do it all. I think like if we release the, I know exactly what I need to accomplish at the end of this conversation and we move back to, I know what I'm trying to communicate to this person. Like I, I have clear in my head what I'm trying to communicate to this person. And if we get to that point, we consider that success. I think like that, that is a much better goal for a discussion than the ones we usually go into it with, which is often looks like I'm going to get this person to do this, this, and this in support of what I want. Yeah. Um, it's like letting go of your agenda. Yes. Yeah, exactly. This is why Kim is the author. Because she can say in three words. Uh, what took so I me think what you're sentences. trying to say. Well, I think you you did tap into some really important things, which is around impact versus intention. And I feel like there's actually been kind of some new understandings around impact and intention, especially around diversity and inclusion, and just oh well, I didn't mean to, and sort of you know that we really do need to take responsibility for that. Might not have been someone's intention, and yet here's really the impact. So I don't know, Kim, do you have some other thoughts? I feel like your thinking has maybe been evolving and growing on kind of impact and intention. Yeah. I mean, I, th there was a, there was some, someone I worked with who was having a bad impact on his team and, and one person on his team, in fact, was, was getting really, really depressed as, as a result, I think of, of, of this man's behavior. And I was trying to talk to him about how he was behaving. And I said, so-and-so on your team is really depressed. And he said, I wasn't aware, as if that absolved him of all responsibility in the situation. And, and I said, it is your job to be aware. And he said, why do I want, you know, why do I want, I said, know thyself. And his response was, who wants to know? And uh, that was a big problem. <laughs> I mean, it was a funny response. It's why I like this guy. But it was also a huge problem yeah. for his team, for the mental health of his team, yeah. but also for, for his team's ability to achieve results. It was just a huge problem. So thank you for making me aware. I do want to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think, Jason, what you said is so important because we see this a lot in our workshops where people go into these triangle exercises of giving feedback that they haven't been able to give of sort of going in like a Hunger Games death match. Like, I am going to get this person to agree to this, like, by hook or by crook. And it's really like, how can we co-create to an even better place? So, so in your mind, going into this conversation with Kim, what was your intention? I, twofold. One was to understand, uh, to, to gain a better understanding of what what was behind the thoughts and the and and the behavior. And two was to come to some kind of agreement about what we should do next. I didn't know if that meant like I didn't know exactly what that looked like. Um, 
And so I, I was very open to the possibility that like the right thing to do was, for example, to like involve Kim more in something like maybe she did want to be more involved and we were excluding her. Like I, I, that, that wasn't what I, what I assumed, but like that would have been a fine outcome from that conversation is like, Kim's going to engage more deeply in some of these other conversations. I would summarize my intention as like, just be curious about what's being curious about what's going on, like, and trying to, and at the same time, like my other goal, my other intent in, in the conversation was to be clear about what I perceived to be the impact of the behavior as it stood at that moment. And Kim, is the person receiving the feedback, you know, one of the things that I think, especially in challenging, is that people start to do a bit of a laundry list. And then this happened, and then this happened, and this happened. And so we really like to use the situation behavior impact model from the Center for Creative Leadership. And so in your mind, Kim, when we say the the, the model, just walk us through the model and why you find that helpful. Well, so in, in specifically in this case, Jason said, when you have all these ideas and you sort of throw them over the wall to us to execute and then you run down the hill to diagram sentences and don't help us do the work that you're creating, it's frustrating. So that was sort of situation behavior impact. Here was the situation. Here was my behavior. And the impact was that I was frustrating this team of people who I care a lot about. And the last thing I think is productive or desirable is for me to frustrate the team of people who I care about working with. And, uh, and so I think that was sort of a, a, a really simple example of why that, why that model, SBI, Situation Behavior Impact, is so impactful, is so, so helpful. I have a few tips. Uh, as always, our Radical Candor Checklist, enter the conversation from a place of curiosity rather than judgment. Remember that you can't hold both curiosity and judgment at the same time. The, the secret to productivity and quarantine is that you can't get as much done as you did before. It's really important to remember that you want to manage your own emotions in these conversations. Know what's sort of your responsibility and, and what's theirs and what really matters to you. And make sure that you're clear with the other person that... Uh, and yourself, that they're not responsible f- for your emotion, but that their action might be having a negative impact on. Remember, feedback is not name calling. Jason did not say, Kim, you big asshole, you're throwing all your work on me. What he, what he used was instead situation behavior impact. <laughs> sort of the, the, the Center for Creative Leadership has come up with this tool where you say, here's the situation. We're all working really hard. Here's your behavior. You keep throwing work over the over the wall and then running away. Here's the impact. It's frustrating the team. So try using situation behavior impact rather than just calling people an asshole. Kim really likes Beep. the word asshole. I love that <laughs> word. I know I'm not supposed to use it, so I have to get creative in how I do. Beep. So for more tips, check out the show notes for this episode. It's season two, episode three. Go to RadicalCandor.com slash podcast. And finally, a word from our sponsor. All right, everybody. Here is an ad from the person who hates ads. But I do love uh, what I'm about to tell you about. So Radical Candor has partnered with a leadership coaching team from Torch to bring you the Radically Candid Coach, my first ever publicly offered course for coaches. 
Over the course of four one-hour sessions, I'm going to share some thoughts with you about how coaches can do the following three things. Better support their clients with kind and clear communication. Two, help clients build better relationships and teams by thinking more clearly about talent development. And three, focus on getting things done through better decision-making. The Radically Candid Coach begins on May 27 at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Time. Go to RadicalCandor.com slash services to sign up. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Nobody delivers a not ad like you do. Thanks for joining us. Our podcast features Radical Candor co-founders Kim Scott and Jason Rosoff, is produced by our director of content, Brandy Neal, and hosted by me, Amy Sandler. Music is by Cliff Goldmacher. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Candor and find us online at RadicalCandor.com. We'll see you soon.